Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Spiritual Practice and Mindfulness. I'm Silas Day, the host of this channel, and today we'll be talking to Gina Beagle about her new book, Be Mindful and Stress Less, 50 Ways to Deal with Your Crazy Life, which dives into 50 great ways to try and have a little more mindfulness and a little less stress in our day-to-day goings-on. Gina offers a wonderful array of short lessons that, if used, can help anyone go much deeper into their practice of life. Gina is a psychotherapist, researcher, speaker, and author in the San Francisco Bay Area who specializes in mindfulness-based work with adolescents. Gina, welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me today. uh, Gina, I was curious if you could start the interview by just telling us a little bit about yourself. Uh, What got you interested in mindfulness or what got you interested to write this book? Sure. So I guess I would say what got me interested in writing this book um, would be that I want to make mindfulness accessible to all people. And and in a way, it's kind of like blue collar mindfulness that like, how do you bring mindfulness practices or these formal practices that technically or typically are 45 minutes to an hour of these formal practices? How do you bring them into someone's everyday life and make them really accessible, whether you're a teen, young adult or adult is not that we can't, they can't make the time. They're not necessarily going to want to make the time to spend 45 to 60 minutes a day doing a practice. And so how do I give them the biggest bang for their buck? How do I teach them how to bring mindfulness into all the different aspects of their life? And so that's why I have these 50 50 different practices, 50 different chapters or activities, and it's really activity-based. So it's how do you bring mindfulness into every different aspect of your life from the morning you wake up until until the minute you go to sleep? Right. It actually one other thing is interesting is I actually wrote a card deck called Be Mindful and it was from the card deck that this book got kind of born. And so the titles for the card deck are similar, but all the content therein of this book is very very different. Hmm. That's really cool. Uh, what when did you first get introduced to mindfulness practice or kind of a a stress reduction based practice of mindfulness? Yeah, so this is interesting. I, I've shared this in some of my speaking, but I've actually never shared this on an interview. So when I was 18, um, right around the day before Thanksgiving, I was driving home from college. I went to UC Santa Barbara, and I was a passenger in a car that had hydroplaned off the freeway, and um, it was a near-fatal car accident. And when I was in rehab, I learned about guided guided imagery. I learned about meditation, but I didn't learn about it as a traditional mindfulness-based stress reduction program, the adult practice in which my program is adapted from. And so it was there that I first learned about meditation type practices. And then when I went to grad school, um, I got connected to Shauna Shapiro, who is was one of my first mentors in my segue into learning about adult MBSR. Hmm. Do you uh, do you have any traditional influences in regards to mindfulness? Like, have, do you touch on the the traditional practices, or have you entirely brought it over into kind of the the Western scientific mindset towards it? I 
I come at it from a very a definite secular point of view. My um, my first teachers were John Kabat-Zinn and Saki Santorelli. I've done work with Bob Stahl, who's in the Bay Area in California. And, and my more, most current um, influencers and mentors are both Dan Siegel and Rick Hansen. Um, this book is heavily influenced by Rick Hansen's positive neuroplasticity training. Um, I took his training and it has definitely impacted my work. And um, so I take my my approach today is taking MBSR, making it applicable to all people, be it teens and all people, because the teen program can really be used for everyone. And then what it's once you become more mindful and aware, where do you put your attention? And so with teens in particular, they can choose to put their attention still on the things that we don't want them to put their attention on, such as self-harm or negative coping skills. And so it's helping them once they become more mindful in that foundational time to then help them kind to direct their attention um, and not just not only being spaciously aware, but more directedly aware and attending to things that, you know, fill them up, that help them, that um, nourish them. You know, it, it's so nice to, uh, I guess, meet someone coming at it from that kind of secular perspective, because I really think it just brings more to a practice of mindfulness overall, where you can go down the traditional roots or you can take these roots that are, you know, founded in psychology and neuroscience and uh, these different tested methods to if you want to go at it against one certain thing or with one certain thing in your day to day practice. But that that's really cool. Um so with the book overall, just start talking to me about it. Why did you decide to put it together? Sure. So, you know, as a the cards being a base and hearing just how like personal experiences with people using the cards and learning just how much how valuable they were to people, it just kind of happened. You know, I'm a big acronym person. I, I really like you know, it's actually, this is a really, really good way to put it. When I first created the program of mindfulness based stress reduction for teens, it was really my way of being able to to interpret the adult MBSR program. It was basically me trying to synthesize that program for myself. And at the same time, I was working in a child and adolescent psychiatry department. So I was translating what I was learning into my work with families and teens and even kids. And I was seeing these huge changes, these huge benefits. And so what I've learned is that making breaking things down, making them understandable and easy to do you're going to have a lot more success at people actually doing it. Um, when I first learned about mindfulness, no one really talked about what mindfulness meant. No one really talked about why we were practicing our intentions really, or, you know, what, um, what this was going to do. And so I really like to give the reasons, the intentions for all of these practices that are in this book. And, and the book is set up in a sec- in a way in which there's three sections. And so the first section of all the chapters is called pause or pay attention with senses, or also you can look, think about pause, P-A-U-S-E, like taking a pause. And I think with, with all of us and including with teens, it's really important to take, to learn how to take notice of your life, to learn how to be in the now and not so connected to things that have happened or worrying about how something's going to turn out and to start living your life more fully in the present because teens are, are very able to go over how things went or thinking about how things are going to be and we're going to the next best thing, right? They're kind of always, they're very goal oriented and that's fine, but goal oriented without intentionality, I think is problematic. And so it's also 
if you're constantly going, you're not really living your life. I know like with social media, a lot of times teens are taking pictures or videos of events and not even actually being in the event or experiencing the event because they're wanting to take a recording of the event. And so it's helping teens and young people to just really start to become aware of all the things that are already around them, such as their senses and how they can turn into their senses and come to their senses to start noticing many things that maybe their brain doesn't it kind of sweeps over and just taking the moment to notice the little things. And it's not that you're, everyone's going to notice everything every minute of the day. Otherwise we'd be sloths or zombies, right? Walking around. And so it's, it's helping people take notice of things that maybe you just get missed and, and how can that then make your life richer? And why would you want to do that? You want to do it because hopefully by becoming more aware of your senses and becoming more mindful, you are then more thoughtful. You are then more able to decide what you want to do next. And it's almost like adapting Viktor Frankl's quote. It's that mindfulness puts a pause between a stimulus and allows for a response instead of an automatic reaction that I think a lot of us, including teens, can automatically react without thinking things out. Or even, you know, when a teen posts something or or we send an email without reading it or send a text without reading it. And it, I think there's this automatic need sometimes to react or to res- instead of, okay, maybe I just because an email's coming at me, I don't have to write back right away. Or just because someone wants something from me right now doesn't mean I have to give it back right away. So the first section is is definitely teaching foundational practices while also weaving in I think some depth to it. So for example, paying attention to your senses, not only can you become more spaciously and directed in terms of your awareness of your senses, but you can also then take that and and become more spacious and directed of your thoughts, knowing the contents of your consciousness, the landscape of your thoughts, noticing where you want to focus your attention. That's all woven into these front activities too, even though it doesn't seem like it. I I kind of uh, pepper it throughout these early activities as well. Right. You know, and I think that's a great place to start because even people who do practice meditation or do practice mindfulness, uh, I'll use me, me as an example. I still find myself, even when I'm just trying to sit down and relax for a minute, automatically reaching for my phone or reaching for the computer because I've got emails to answer or, you know, looking around to find something to occupy my mind with instead of just sitting and trying to breathe for a second and and recuperate from whatever it was I was doing or will be doing, you know? Well, what's interesting about what you just said is I remember when I was first learning mindfulness practice, it's like, okay, sit with an an itch before you scratch it, sit with a a physical discomfort before you move. And similarly, now it's like, okay, sit with that itch of wanting to look at your phone before you do, you know, it's, it's noticing those urges to want to surf or the surf, the urge, you know, or surf those urges. And unfortunately, we get much greater dopamine hits from our phone than we do from an itch. Right. <laughs> and, so, and so there's this greater reward um, in our brains that is coming from our phones. And so therefore we have to realize just how much powerful, much more powerful it is, you know? Right. And, and even then, you know, we look around us and if everyone is doing it, well, we go, well, like, I guess it's okay to do it then or now. And I, the, the self-control what, aspect yeah. of it is just kind of tossed out the window. <laughs> I have a quote from a teen who said, if it's, if everyone's doing it, is it really a problem? I was like, you know, it's, it's a really good point. Right. I mean, parents are often ragging on their teens to get off their phones 
But I'm saying, you know, we all we all have some of this issue going on. And the thing is, is that with teens, though, they're not going to have the regulation regulation abilities to put it down, whereas we because of our our development should be able to put it down and so don't assume that your your kid's going to self-regulate themselves and put their phones down it's not going to happen they need you to say time off like create boundaries say no um take your i'm sorry i get really heated about the phone topic because having a having a phone is a privilege it's not a right and i unfortunately i've just seen so many deleterious consequences happening from parents being afraid to take away their kids phones or their video games, or their computers. And I think there are certain times that parents and all of us need to say it's enough. You know, it's it's time to take a step back. And, and that's why these earlier practices help someone to take that step back, to be aware of what just their environment. Even how do you be mindful with your cell phone? And I think there's ways to do that because the thing is, is we're all connected to our phones. We're all connected to digital devices. So how do we start being more mindful of those devices is where, what we need to do. And that's the whole approach of my book is how do we bring mindfulness to everything everyone's doing today? And, and even with your phone, you can be mindful of your phone. There's so many different ways to use mindful mindfulness in your phone to your advantage, actually. Now, uh, I know this is a little off topic here, but do you think in this mindfulness practice that a a practice of meditation is necessary or can you just do these mindfulness practices and within that realm have that as a mindfulness practice separate from a, a more formal sitting meditation, even if it is for 10 or 15 minutes? Um, I'll, I'll go with what Rick Hansen always tells me is Mo Betta, <laughs> M-O-B-E-T-H-A. More is better. However, I will I would prefer someone to do something versus nothing. Right. And so, of course, you do not need to have a sitting practice of 40 minutes a day to get a benefit. However, over time, my hope is, is that people will read this book and begin to bring these practices in their life. And as it becomes more just part and parcel of all of your day, it will lead to, I think, naturally longer practices if that's something that interests yeah. you. You know, I when I teach in a group setting, you know, there's always, you know, somewhere between four and six, let's say out of 30, that really, really kind of warm up to mindfulness practice, like really want to bring it into their lives with to becoming a, a, a a deeper practitioner of it. And in that case, in those cases, it's like helping them to do that, which it's taking any of these practices in here. And then also in other books I've written, I, I write more about formal practices and, and it's, it's bringing those into your life every day and, and for longer periods of time. But if you look at the research, it does not support that longer practice is a equated with a be- more benefit right. and i'm not, i would never tell a, a, a team that of <laughs> course because i want them to practice but it, it does say that any for some practice is better is going to have some result is better than nothing you know it's uh for some reason it's reminding me of a quote from yogananda from the early 19th century he said that you know i'm not going to kick you out of my meditation seminar just because you smoke or you drink or yada 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 but that if you continue to come to my meditation seminar, you might not want to do those right, things right. anymore. You know, it, it's just that continued yeah. practice. All right. Could you tell me about the uh, self-care aspect sure. of the book? 
I find that a lot of young people in particular don't even know what self-care is, don't know what basic needs are that are already being met for them. And I, I think it's extremely important to teach almost these human values, sometimes referred to in other disciplines as mindful qualities, but how to start delving into the parts that make a person a person. So, you know, ac- accepting yourself, having compassion for yourself and others, learning about respect, learning about having self-confidence and self-esteem, you know, having gratitude toward yourself and toward others. It's bringing in these other qualities that I think really flesh out that umbrella of mindfulness, because these are the qualities that you can bring into your life that you can really work with your entire life. For example, if you worked with gratitude every day for the rest of your life, Every day you're grateful for different things. Every day you're a new person. You're a different person in terms of your brain structure and function. And so every every day your your experience is going to be different that you bring to a gratitude practice or a compassion practice. And I think the earlier we can be teaching young people about these positive, um, beneficial resourcing um, skills that provide teens and young people with a sense of safety, connection, and security, um, and contentment, not only with other people, but also to learn how to be alone, learn how to be okay in their own skin, learning how to, that they don't always need to be on some device for them to feel fulfilled. And so having to start, you know, from within teaching them skills that can really kind of unearth that diamond that's in all of teens to help really providing them with a sense of agency and and control in their life in situations where they often don't feel like that, that they have it. One other thing I would say is there's a lot of adults that ask, we ask a lot of teens that or young people that we don't teach them. When I first started teaching mindfulness to young people uh, about 15 years ago, um, you know, a lot of it was about attention. We ask young people to pay attention, but when do we actually teach them how? And expanding on that is we ask them to do engage in positive coping skills, but when are they actually learning them? Or we ask them to take care of themselves and engage in self-care activities, but when are they provided with what those are and what are their models and what they see. And so this middle section is really diving into those topics and how to bring self-care into your life. Um, yeah. It, it, it's asking them to ride a bicycle when we've never shown exactly. them how to ride a bicycle. It's, it's expecting them to pick up, you know, 50, a bicep curl and, and, and do a 50 pound weight when they've never used a weight. You know, one aspect of your, the self-care section that I, I thought was interesting was, uh, and you mentioned it a little earlier was like uh, compassion or being able to be comfortable in a room alone by yourself. Um, And how I I think that you illustrate it well. And um, a lot of mindfulness books that approach uh, mindfulness and stress reduction and everything from a more secular perspective, sometimes leave out. I think that you definitely teach, which is great for the the teens, the young adults that are going to be picking up this book, is that ability to kind of care for yourself and love for yourself. And it, it's not just about being mindful and caring for, you know, these emotions that rise up due to exterior events or people, but it, it's being able to work with the 
uh, inner self too, and being able to forgive yourself for saying things wrong or being able to be more compassionate towards yourself when you, you know, misspell a word mm-hmm. or you accidentally trip, you know? And, and I thought that was, that was a great aspect of it. Um, do you think that's the case? Like that, that we just, in a way we, don't teach our teenagers and our young adults how to be compassionate and mindful with themselves? Absolutely. I don't think that that I don't think that teens are learning how to be compassionate with themselves. I find them to be very hard on themselves, even in cases where parents aren't even hard on them or putting pressure on them. The pressures that I see young people putting on themselves is is quite astonishing and at the young age that they're I find that things that maybe would affect you know maybe a 10th or 11th grader are now kind of aging down trending down to like sixth graders and so we're asking young people to to be mature and advanced in many ways in which they just aren't yet and because of their brain development because of literally their developmental stage and age they they're having to be very mature and and deal with a lot of things that I don't think they're really quite capable of yet. And that's why I think it's so important to teach these things as young as possible to plant these seeds so that they can learn how to deal with disappointment so they can learn how to deal with pain. I find that a lot of in our culture, especially in the United States, there's this kind of like push pain away or cling to it or just try to bandaid it and fix it and get rid of it as quick as possible. Sometimes I'll work with teens and I'll be like, oh, you're crying. Okay. You're sad. That's okay. It's okay to experience pain. And and it's not that I want someone to go into a full depression or want them to be crying every day, but having some sort of pain, understanding they can tolerate it and get through it, that's needed so that when something like a crisis or a serious trauma or something very serious does happen, which will at some point in their life, they're able to deal with it. So I think that talking about what you were just saying, the two things that come to mind is how how do we and how do young people approach pain? So not only about how they deal with pain um, and, and then also the pressures they put on themselves, but also the the time that they're not in silence. And I had a, is it okay if I keep going? Do you mind? Okay. I had a situation. So when I first started teaching this, you know, cell phones, there were no, uh, you know, social media didn't exist and cell phones were not such an appendage as they are today. I mean, people had, teens had cell phones, but not, not like today at all. There was no smartphones, for example. And, and so silence was always something I think that a mindfulness teacher is going to um, have to deal with, like, you know, you want how to not deal with, but you're going to work with people, all people of how to deal with silence, you know, because people think that it's hard to sometimes be in silence, even though, as you probably know, that we're really almost never in silence because of ambient noises, etc. But over time, I've noticed that it's become much more difficult for teens to do the practices and one of the times this this really came to light for me, I was teaching a sitting practice around winter time, and a whole bunch of teens were sitting around tables in the middle of the room. And above us was a heater vent that was going on because it was the winter. And so the vent, the heater was going on the whole time. And so there was noise emitting from that. And then obviously there were teens rustling here and there, there's movement, you know, in the seats and whatever, and clearing your throat, et cetera. And after the practice was over, um, a, a girl had tears in her eyes and I asked, her, you know, are you okay? What's going on? She said, I couldn't stand it. It was so silent in here. And that was really powerful moment for me. That's pretty crazy. You know, you know, uh, 
uh, one of the people that I worked with previously said something very similar where she said that the scariest thing to her was having to sit in silence alone where she she had to be entirely alone and with her thoughts and how how that was just terrifying with her um one thing that i was going to ask about though since you've been uh, you know a practicing psychologist for that long is have you seen a a, a you mentioned it earlier where the problems of a 10th grader are now the problems of a 6th grader um do, do you see that trend continuing where we, the, the younger children have these greater pressures put on them and, you know, we, we don't have the faculty or the, the uh, methods to teach them how to deal with those things. Um, why do you think that is? I think a lot of it has to do with access to internet and I think of access to concepts and topics that weren't as readily available, you know, you'd have to look something up in an encyclopedia or you'd have to search it in, in the library. And a lot of advanced topics and, and are provided on the internet readily. And I think they're learning about things earlier than they have in past generations. And, and it's not that I'm saying technology is all bad or computers are all bad. By no means am I saying that. I'm just saying that they're having access to uh, you know, self-harm, how to do that, sexual topics, sexual things that they would never have seen before, even, you know, uh, access to building weapons and all of these things are, you know, there's just so many things that are readily available at their fingertips. And they're learning about a lot of concepts that we didn't learn when we were younger. So yeah, as young, you know, I didn't know about the things that our sixth graders talk about, you know, and today and, um, And it's, I don't say we're in a crisis because I think that we are, we can deal, we just need to teach young people how to manage what's coming at them because it's not that these things are going to change. It's not that the internet's going away. They're still going to be learning these topics, but how do we teach sixth graders about self-care? How do we teach them about, you know, loving their bodies, loving themselves instead of, you know, I'm in the Bay Area and I was working with a sixth grade girl who a couple girls at her school who were her friends told her to literally jump off the Golden Gate Bridge. And, and I, it was not, it wasn't a joke and it wasn't a one-time occurrence. And this girl was crushed and, and rightfully so. I mean, anyone who hears that no matter how old you are is going to have feelings in response to that. But you and I know that it's going to pass. You and I know that we have, you know, it's, it's the impermanence of this, that statement and that we don't necessarily have to act on it or think it's true or believe it because someone says it. Whereas a sixth grader who has recently been playing with, you know, toys and is now like, and, and told to go jump off a bridge. Right. You know, she, it's, she, it's crazy. She has to face her own mortality in the sixth grade. Right. In the sixth grade, right? And 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 this this girl at the same time is you know dealing with body image and her body's changing and um, you know she's dealing with like learning how to interact with people online via Minecraft. There's all of these things that you know when I was her age. I just wasn't, wasn't available to me. Right. It's like, we're, we're asking our, our kids and our teens and our young adults to be 
fully developed, you know, mature adults in a functioning society, fully enveloped in, you know, their trade or their discipline or whatever, when they're sixth graders at this point, you know, uh, I'm young enough to remember that even when I was in the seventh or the eighth grade, people were already talking about like, oh, what are you going to do in college? How are Mm -hmm. you going to set up all these different things instead of teaching us how to deal with the problems and the developments that we were going you know, experiencing right there, it was it was already flinging ourselves into this unknown future that you know right. change at the drop of a hat. Um, with, with that, I, I'd love to talk about the the last little section of your book called Acorn. Now, what does that stand for? Always consider other responses. Now, um, I think a lot of young people don't really kind of I say this play out the end of the movie. You know, they don't necessarily think about what. The, the consequences or results of their choices and actions. And it's helping, helping young people to think about other, maybe taking that pause, considering other thoughts, considering that maybe the first thing someone says to them, you know, maybe isn't true or real, or the first thought you have might not be true or real. Um, it's starting to explore really metacognition. It's, it's knowing, starting to learn about what your thoughts are, um, and your judgments and your worries and how some of those aren't particularly helpful, rather particularly can be harmful. And then how to use, use what you're become aware of in your thoughts and, and use positive neuroplasticity. It's, it's, you know, pull weeds and, and plant seeds. I have, you know, an acronym in the book called HOT, um, which is really how do you take an experience and create it into a lasting beneficial resource? So it's, you know, have an experience or go and create a positive experience. We have so many awesome po- opportunities every day to notice something good, even if it's not even like a fabulous fireworks moment. For example, you obviously can't see me, but I set up a situation in, my, in where I'm at right now where I have this amazing jasmine green tea. I have a, a candle burning. I you know, I have a shawl on, those are things that resource myself. So those are things I could just notice. So I can have this beneficial experience, take in the good. And then how do I open to that experience, you know, really start to savor what you, what the thing you're noticing is. So maybe smelling the tea, enjoying a sip of it, noticing where it came from and how it's a special batch of tea, and then taking it in, really enjoying it as long as I can. And, and you know, research shows that with even just minimal 12 seconds, you know, six to nine times a day, we can shift away from that negative selection bias that all of us have. We, we come from a long line of very anxious people, um, the people who were out and, you know, picking berries, not looking for paying attention to tigers. They didn't survive. Those who were alert and maybe a little hypervigilant on edge, those are the ones that survive. So we come from a long line of kind of anxious people. Right. And it's it's normal for us to tilt to the tilt to the negative. So the this, this activities and chapters in the acorn section are how do we shift away from that automatic kind of response or automatic reaction to the negative and how do we start tilting more toward the positive? You know, when I was reading it, it reminded me, um, 
a little bit of Alan Watts's fully automatic model, where he talked about the the way that Western civilization is going, how we're going from these natural experiences of focusing on, you know, enjoying our food or having a discipline or a trade where we can be fully engaged with it. And from that kind of learn how to be mindful with a moment or, you know, we're left to our own devices much more. But with the, the, the increase in technology and kind of the shifting in culture that's going on, we find ourselves being kind of fully automatic where you can go throughout your entire day without actually participating in any of the things that you're doing. You know? Right. And I think that's what's happening a lot with teens and social media. Right. It's like they can eat their breakfast, but did they taste the food? Did they, did they even know? notice they were eating? Yeah. It's just, are they shoving it in their mouth? And right. that can be applicable you know, to, to us too. Yeah. <laughs> to, to us too or to, to anything. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it was a incredible book that I think is going to help anyone that comes across it, regardless of their age. I think it is basic enough and, but at the same time, deep enough to, to warrant and inspire someone to more carefully uh, go about their day and their life. Um, and I very much so enjoyed your book, Miss Gina. Thank you. Hey, no I problem. appreciate that. Um, you, you know, and just as we're we're getting close to the end here, what other projects are you working on? It does it doesn't have to be like your next book. It, it can be psychological projects or business projects or anything. Sure. So actually, I have another book coming out um, August first, and it's um, Mindfulness for Student Athletes. Mm-hmm. And I am writing a clinical book on my program MBSRT for Norton, which will come out a year from October. And I'm working on a um, self harm. Um, and mindfulness book for young people on looking at self-harming um, behaviors, but more importantly, the thoughts that precede the behaviors, the, the thoughts, the self-harming thoughts that teens are so engaging in. Um, I think that moving forward, I would like to see how I can bring it, this work more to adults. Um, as you just were saying, really, I truly believe that anything in this book would apply to all adults. And I'm hoping that in some ways I can transition also to helping, helping adults bring this into their lives in a very, very accessible and um, a time appropriate way. Uh, Yeah. You know, my background, I I was talking to Rick Hansen about kind of moving forward in my career. And, you know, he said to me basically, you know, you're kind of the blue collar mindfulness girl, you know, like I came from a very adverse background and before I was in high school, I moved 13 times and I come from a very low SES family. I'm the first person in my family to go to college. I'm kind of a miracle story in many ways. And it's amazing that I am doing what I'm doing today. Like I also feel so honored, grateful and blessed for my career right now. Um, it, it, it is honestly, truly just humbling that I am where I'm at right now. Well, thank you so much, Gina. Uh, Gina's Be Mindful and Stress Less, you can find it now on Amazon.com. Thank you so much and take care. Thank you.